Well, uh, the, the two most famous seasons of the church calendar is, are the seasons of Advent, the season we just came out of where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and the season of Easter where we commemorate the, the death of Jesus. And in between these two uh, very uh, popular, very well-known seasons, there's a lesser-known season of the church calendar called Epiphany. And during this time, the church typically studies the life of Jesus, the life and teachings of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do for the next uh, few weeks, we're gonna, or a few couple months. We're going to be looking at the life of Jesus, um, and we're going to do it out of the book of John. And specifically, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the miracles of Jesus. Um, and really, there's, there's no way to better understand uh, Jesus, what he came, who he was and what he came to do, than to look at Jesus' miracles. And in the Gospel of John, John calls Jesus' miracles signs. So uh, he has seven signs that he picks out and that he describes, miracles that Jesus did. And um, it's important that he calls them signs because, uh, you know, the miracles that Jesus did, they weren't just naked displays of power. They weren't just things that Jesus did to show everybody how great he was, you know, that indeed he was God. The, the miracles that he did were signs. They all were pointers. They all teach. They all symbolize something. They all tell us something about who Jesus was and what he came to do. Right, so these are signs. Uh, you know, signs are, they are, they're almost little foretastes or previews of the kingdom of God, of, of what the, the world God intends looks like. A couple weeks ago, we went to go see a movie. We saw a Spider-Man. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've, it's been so long since I went to go see a movie, I forgot how long the previews were before the film starts. And we were like halfway through our popcorn before we actually got to see uh, Spider-Man do his thing. But before that, there were previews. And what is a preview? A preview is a snapshot. A preview is a little picture of what the, the coming film is going to be about. And so you watch it and you say, well, I, I want to see it. Or oh, maybe I don't want to see that one. Think of Jesus' miracles as previews. They are signs, they are symbols, they are little snapshots of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Somebody once said that Jesus' miracles, they are not suspensions of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. When you look at one of Jesus' miracles, you see the world, just for a second, the way it was intended to look like. Right, so we're, we're going to be looking at these signs over the next uh, several weeks uh, in order to figure out who Jesus is and the world he came to bring. And so a little uh, assignment, if you want, uh, you can follow us in the book of John. So on your own, before you come to the sermon on Sunday, you could actually read through the, the passage that we're going to be looking at. And I think you'll get a, a lot more out of, the, out of the teaching on Sundays. And so today we're going to look at the very first sign. Now, uh, the first sign that Jesus performs here in John chapter 2 is pretty interesting, right? This is, um, this is Jesus' first miracle, right? This is his coming out uh, miracle, right? This is the very first act of his public ministry. And when, when a leader is rolling out a campaign, 
right? The first thing that you do is very, very important. It's symbolic. Every detail needs to be right. Every detail is carefully crafted. When you are rolling out a campaign or uh, starting a, bin- a business venture, you know, all the branding, everything speaks, right? What does Jesus do for his very first sign? Does he feed the, the hungry masses? No. Does, does he heal uh, a blind man? No. Does he raise the dead? No. For Jesus' coming out miracle, the very first thing that he, that he does, the first miracle he performs, is to keep a party going. Right? He, he ta- a party that's sort of on the downswing, you know? It's, it's, kind, of on the, it's kind of limping a little bit. He, he makes amazing wine and puts it back on track again. What does this tell us about what Jesus came to do? What, this is a sign, right? This is a, this is a symbol. What is it a symbol of? What does it teach us about Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at today. And so what I want to do is I want to just go slowly through the miracle because it's a really interesting story. And then we'll ask, what does it signify? What is a sign in this miracle? And then finally, what does it mean for us? Let's just jump right into it. John 2. On the third day, so he's counting here from the uh, baptism of Jesus, three days after Jesus' baptism. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana is a small little village in the area of Galilee. Of course, Galilee is where Jesus grew up, so this is right near his hometown. And because of that, uh, scholars, uh, Bible commentaries uh, theorize that this was a wedding of a family friend, or this was a wedding of a relative. This is somebody that Jesus knew very, very well. And so uh, he he goes to this wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, in the first century, weddings were a big deal. Weddings are a big deal now, I know. You know, you spend months and months, even years, planning your wedding. But back then, weddings were absolutely a big, big deal. Uh, The whole village would, would shut down. Everybody in the village would come to the wedding. Uh, It would go on for seven days or more. Right, so this was a long, you know, week-long occasion. It was, it was a celebration. There was wine involved. And uh, apparently back then, the groom's family paid for the wedding. Now, I'm glad that we don't do that anymore, or I would be in big trouble. I've got four boys. But there's a crisis at the wedding. So um, right there in the middle of the week, we don't know when it was, but right there in the middle, uh, it says here that the wine was running out. Uh, this, and and this, was a, this was a catastrophe. And uh, it would have been an incredible embarrassment for the groom and his family to have the, this, this, this horrible thing happen, you know, where the party stops. It just would have been humiliating. I remember the first wedding I did, or one of the first weddings I did, it was, <laughs> I botched it. And uh, I, it, was a, it was a beautiful wedding. It was on the cliffs, you know, on the beach in California. And, uh, you know, everybody's dressed night. It was this beautiful occasion. And when the bride came down the aisle, you know when the pastor says, all rise? Well, I had everybody stand up. I forgot to tell them to sit down. And so throughout the whole wedding, uh, the, the whole church was standing up. And I didn't realize it until almost the thing was over, and I looked up, and I was like, everybody's standing up here. And there's grandma there standing up, and there's the father of the bride. He is red with anger. And I, I was just, it was humiliating. And many of you will never ask me to do a wedding for you. But this would have been an embarrassment. You know, this, you know weddings are, are, are high intensity. You don't want to botch the thing. And this would have been a botched embarrassment. And more than that, this was an honor-shame culture. 
And so uh, in this culture, if you had, if something like this happened at a wedding, the family would be shamed. And in fact, there could have been a lawsuit uh, that the bride's family could have brought against uh, the groom. Here, so this is a really, this is a catastrophe. This is terrible what's going on here. Um, And then Jesus' mom comes to him. It says, uh, when the wine ran out, this is verse three, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So uh, Mary, uh, because this was a family friend, people uh, guessed that maybe Mary was involved in the catering, you know, some part of the organization of the wedding. And so she comes to Jesus when this happens, and she looks at him, and I love it, she just says, they have no wine. Classic passive-aggressive mom here. She doesn't come out and just say what she wants or command Jesus, you know, do something. They've run out of wine. She just looks at him and says, there's, or, you know, there's, there's no wine here, hint, hint. But notice how Jesus answers his mom. It's kind of rude, actually. He says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, every commentator says that the way Jesus answers her is is very, very rude. He doesn't call her mother, he calls her woman. And this, it would have sounded exactly the way it sounds in the passage. It's like saying lady, like a cab driver would to a woman, or, you know, ma'am, or something like that. It's a very cold expression. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? Right, very un-Christ-like of Jesus, right? You don't talk to your mom that way. What is he doing? Well, uh, what uh, the commentators say is that uh, uh, what Mary's mom was trying to get the inside track here. It's almost like she was coming to Jesus and saying, do, do a favor for your mama, Jesus. Uh, do a favor for the family. This is going to be embarrassing. You know, you're kind of obligated to do something. And Jesus says, actually, I'm not obligated to do anything. Right? I am about my father's business, not the business of the family. And I will do what my father wants me to do. But Mary must have known that he was going to do something because she walks away and she's not deterred at all. She looks at the servants and as she walks away, she looks at them and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. (laughs) And so she walks off. And here's what Jesus does. This is in verse six. Now there were six stone water jars and there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and, it, and did not know where it came from, though the servants knew where the, water, where the water came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What does Jesus do? Well, he says, first, grab the water, uh, the, the pots for purification. Now, these were, uh, these were instruments, uh, religious instruments of purification for Jewish religious rites. Uh, they would fill them with water and wash themselves ceremonially. They were empty at the time. And so Jesus says, take the pots, fill them to, br- to the brim with water. They do that. And then they, he says, now I want you to take some to the master of the feast. And so they take the jar to the master of the feast and they, they bring it out thinking, oh my gosh, this is gonna make him sick or something. And they give him the water to drink and the master of the ceremony goes, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's wine. 
And the, the passage here, it emphasizes both the quantity and the quality of the wine. So this is a lot of wine, 180 gallons of wine. Uh, this is roughly, roughly 1,000 bottles of wine. And it's not just, this is not two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's, you know. This is, this is really, really vintage, well-aged, incredibly, incredibly good wine. So much so that the guy is astonished. And he looks over at the groom and he says, hey, everybody brings out the good stuff first, waits till everybody is sloshed, you know, and then they bring out the bad wine, but you have saved this incredible wine until the very end. And then it ends by saying, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. You bet it did. (laughs) What does this miracle have to say about Jesus and what he came to do, right? Every miracle is a sign. Every miracle speaks. Every uh, miracle is symbolic. It tells us something about the world that Jesus came to bring. What does this miracle tell us about the world that Jesus came to bring? Well, In the Old Testament, wine is a symbol that is just brimful of meaning. Uh, Wine is a symbol of abundance. Wine is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of life. And in fact, all the way through the Old Testament, when, when when a person would bless somebody else, it always involved food and wine. Right? May God give you a feast, you know, and may God increase the wine in your life. Wine was a symbol of abundance and incredible joy. In fact, the Old Testament talks about the Messiah. In Isaiah 25, there's this little passage about the Messiah, and let me bring it up here, where it says this, The Lord of hosts on that day will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, strained clear. So when the Messiah comes, the Old Testament says, he's going to bring a party. (laughs) The Messiah is going to bring a party like you have never seen before. Food, it's going to be a feast, and there's going to be wine. And of course, what he's saying is that the Messiah, this is what the Messiah is about. This is what the Messiah has come to do. The Messiah has come to bring life and joy and abundance. Just think about the imagery here. Jesus fills these purification uh, jars with wine, right? These are uh, religious instruments that are used for purity. He fills them with super good wine. What does that say? Imagine, you know, do we have anything like that nowadays, you know, purification jars? Not really, except for maybe the baptistry. Imagine if one day you came into this room and the baptistry is filled with wine. You'd be like, what kind of a church is this? I like it. Who is this Jesus? This is what Jesus, this is the sign, this is the symbol. Jesus has come to bring joy. He's the Lord of the feast. He's come to bring celebration. In fact, later on in the book of John, one uh, translation, in one translation, Jesus says to his followers, I've come to bring you life, life, and more life. Jesus Christ is about joy. Now, I know that some of you are looking at me and saying, well, wait a minute, what about self-denial? Jesus did say, deny yourself. And what about suffering? Jesus, he was poor, you know, and he did suffer a lot, and he told his followers that they were gonna suffer. You know, does, does this mean that Jesus doesn't want us to, to deny ourselves? What does this mean? Well, yes, Jesus did talk about self-denial. Oh, yeah, he did. And he did talk about suffering, but 
He did not talk about self-denial for its own sake. Self-denial is not the end game. Self-denial is a means to an end. And what Jesus is saying is that everything that I'm about, everything that I've come to do is for your joy. That's the end game. That's where the Christian life heads. Now, I know there are people that that say, you know, and I've heard this so many times, people say, you know what, I I know I need to be a Christian, I know I need to follow Jesus, I know I need to get my my life right, but I want to, I don't want to do that now, I I just want to enjoy my life a little bit before I do that. You know, let me go sow my wild oats and really enjoy life and, and have a good time, and when I'm done with all that stuff, then I'll get serious and I'll follow Jesus. And what this miracle is teaching us is that that's backwards, Following Jesus is about enjoying your life. The the pathway that Jesus lays out is the pathway to joy. And yes, it involves self-denial, and yes, there's obedience and even suffering, but it all is in service of ultimate and infinite life. C.S. Lewis, this is a long quote, but I love what he says. This is in one of his essays called The Weight of Glory. And he says, you know, too many Christians, they, they present Christianity like it's just like a, a long, miserable, you know, suffering worship or something. But he says, here's what it really is. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of, of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from the Stoics and not and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus says, here's what I've come to do. I am the Lord of the feast. I follow me and I am telling you, it is, you are headed for infinite, ultimate, incredible joy. Life, life, and more life. That's what this miracle points to. But let me spend a few minutes here uh, talking about what does that mean practically? You know, you, you say, okay, all right, Jesus, you know, it's not that joy is over here and life is over here and following Jesus over here is with suffering and, 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 and mis- misery. It's like joy and following Jesus are together. But what does that look like in my life? Well, it means at least three things, I think. Um, you knew the three points were coming, didn't you? <laughs> this time they're coming towards the end. It at least means, number one, uh, this. This is what the miracle, I think, is trying to teach us. The sign is trying to teach us. This sign gives us permission to enjoy ordinary life. However you think about Christianity, don't think about it as asceticism. Don't think about it as hatred of the body and its enjoyments. This miracle, at very least, on just the top level, gives us permission to enjoy ordinary life. 
you know, the other night we had some friends over, and it was on Christmas Day, and, and they didn't have family here, and I, we didn't have family here. And so they invited, we invited them over to our house for a party. And we made our table look the best that it could possibly look. You know, centerpiece and everything, and the lighting was perfect. And they, they brought a bottle of wine. It was non-alcoholic, of course, because I'm a pastor. No, it was, it was alcoholic. It was, a, it was wine that had alcohol in it. And we celebrated, and we laughed, and we didn't, we didn't get drunk, and we didn't abuse the wine, we just enjoyed the food, we enjoyed the wine, we enjoyed the company. And you know what I think? I think that that was a foretaste or a preview of the kingdom of God, because what it says is that in God's kingdom, we're going to eat, and we're going to celebrate. There's going to be a banquet, And so eat and celebrate and drink. This is permission. This miracle gives you permission to enjoy ordinary life. I was reading a book called Gilead. It's about a Presbyterian minister or Congregationalist minister, a beautiful book. I'd recommend it, Marilyn Robinson. But this uh, pastor, there's one point where he's in his study and and he's dying. He's old, he's 77. He's dying. He he knows he's going to die. And he's sitting in his study and, and a song comes on the radio. And at one point, he, he says, you know, I hate dancing. I've always hated dancing. Uh, my wife always wanted me to dance. I never danced with her. But he says, there was something about this song. You know, I was just, it was so beautiful, and there was something in it. He said, I got up, and I started to dance. He said, I shut the door, of course. And I just started to dance. Here was a man enjoying life. And Jesus, for his first miracle, makes really, really, really good wine. What does this say about God's desire that we enjoy his creation? Uh, Scott Sauls puts it this way. He says, the loudest tables at restaurants should be populated by Christians. The biggest tips that servers receive should be from Christians. The most yelling at a football game and concert should be from Christians. Those who are most drawn in by stories well told in film and literature should be Christians. The most erotic sex in the world should happen in Christian marriage beds. The most playful generosity, the most vigor and work should be from Christians because the human soul is a pleasure center. He says Christians ought to enjoy life. Because the world was created by God, wasn't it? And when he created this world, he said what? He said, it is good. God himself enjoys his creation. He wants us to enjoy it too. Are you enjoying life? Or do you think a Christian should always walk around with a dour face? Are you celebrating? Are you eating meals with loved ones? Are you watching the sunsets? Are you drinking in everything this life has to offer? This miracle gives us permission to enjoy ordinary life. That's the first thing I think it teaches. But second of all, I think it also teaches us that, uh, the sign teaches us that we don't have to fear obedience to Jesus. You know, I think a lot of us think that, you know, if I, if I obey Jesus, it's all about, yes, I know I, I want to have fun, but I'm going to obey Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus, he's about our joy, remember? So every command, every, everything that Jesus tells us to do is for our joy, ultimately. I love in this story, there's this one little line. Remember Jesus, Mary was walking away from Jesus, and she looks at the servants, and what does she tell them? Do whatever he says. What a great model for life. 
Do whatever Jesus says. It's going to lead to your joy. It's going to lead to wine, I'm telling you. Do whatever he says. Does Jesus tell you to forgive your enemies? Do it. Don't just listen to that and think, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to hold a grudge. You do it because Jesus is for your joy. He's telling that you that because he loves you. And he knows that forgiveness leads to life, life and more life. Does Jesus tell you to give gener- generously? Does he tell you to give sacrificially and not just to hold it, all your money and all your things to yourself? Does he tell you to do it? Do it. Right? Do what Jesus tells you to do. It's going to lead for your joy. Does he tell you to honor him with your sexuality? He does tell you to do that. And and when he tells you that, that is for your joy. All of God's commandments, every command in the Bible is about your joy. And it's about life. And when you decide not to do what Jesus is telling you to do, you are working against your own happiness. Some of you right now are on the verge, or maybe this last week, you found yourself doing something that, that was leading to your own misery. You found yourself making a decision to disobey Jesus, and I'm telling you, it is not the way to life. Jesus says, trust me. You know, the, the servants had to trust Jesus here. What he was telling them to do seemed a little weird, didn't it? Fill up the water jugs, the purification jars. Just fill them up. Why is he telling us to do that? That doesn't make sense. Even if Jesus' commands don't make sense to you, make this the, the motto of your life. Do whatever Jesus says. You don't have to be afraid to obey him. He's about your joy. Third thing that this miracle or this sign teaches us about the kingdom, about Jesus, about what he came to do, The third thing is that failure is not the end of joy. Failure is not the end of joy. So look at the story. This is a story about a botched wedding. It's a story about a failure. I don't know whose fault it was, but somebody messed up here. (laughs) Somebody messed up. They ran out of wine. It's midway through. Who's to blame here? Well, somebody, somebody screwed up. This is a failure. But what does Jesus do? He turns the failure into wine. And Jesus always does that. He takes the water of your failure and he turns it to wine every time. This is what he's about. This is what he does. Failure is not the end of joy. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's able to make beauty for ashes. He's able to take something that we botched, whether it's our life or our marriage or our sexuality or whatever it is, something that we messed up with, and he is able to turn that into something beautiful, joyful, life-giving. He's in the turning water into wine business. And it's all just a wonderful uh, gift of God's grace. You know, when you look at the passage here, what, what I love is that they hear Jesus does something for a bunch of people that, this incredible wine, this, this vintage, well-aged wine, he gives it to a bunch of people that are too drunk to know the difference. 
and then the, the, the groom gets credit for something that he didn't do, right? In the story, this, everybody saves the best to life, but you, oh groom, well, look what you've done. You've thrown us a great party. He can't take any credit for that. Jesus did that. But this is grace. We get credit for something that we didn't do. Jesus Christ is Lord of the feast. He's here to turn water into wine, something that we don't deserve, but he's in the grace business. And even Mary here, you know, she comes to Jesus and says, do us a favor, Jesus. I'm your mother, right? You, you're obligated to do this. And Jesus says, oh no, I'm not obligated to do it at all. But I'm doing it as an absolute free gift of grace. Water to wine. Tony Campolo has a story in, in his book. He's got a great book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And in this, this book, he tells this great story. He calls it a party for Agnes. And the story begins, T- Tony Campolo, is, he's in Hawaii, and he's, he can't sleep, you know, one night, and so he goes out to a diner. And he's there at this diner at two in the morning, and he's sitting there talking to the man behind the counter. And then right then, uh, a group of prostitutes uh, barge into this diner. And he's sitting there, and he, and, he, and he can overhear the prostitutes talking. And there's one prostitute, her name is Agnes, and she looks at her friend, and she says, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 tomorrow. And her friend says, well, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to make you a cake or something? You want me to throw you a party? And she says, no, no, I'm not asking you to throw me a party. I'm just saying, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. And she says, well, none of us have had parties, and I don't know why you're saying that. And so they fight, and eventually the, they leave the, the diner. When they left, Tony Campolo looks at the man behind the counter and says, do those women come in here every, every night at 2 a.m.? And he says, oh, yeah, on the dot. Every night after their shift, they're in here at 2 a.m. He says, I've got an idea. Let's throw a party for Agnes. And the guy behind the counter says, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And so uh, the next night, they, uh, they, they make this cake and they decorate the diner and, and uh, Tony Campolo comes in and he's sitting at the counter and, and Agnes and all the women come in and they throw her this, this surprise party. Happy birthday, Agnes, and here's a cake. And Agnes, she, he says that she almost fell to the ground. <laughs> she can't believe this is happening. She almost fell to the ground and she's like, I can't believe this. And, she's, and then she starts weeping, you know, and nobody's ever done this for me before. And she says, wait, before we eat it, can I take my cake home? I live right down the block. I want to show it to my mom. <laughs> and so she, she leaves the diner, and she goes down the block, and she's gone for a few minutes. And Tony Campolo says it was super awkward. It was this odd silence. And so I said, let's have a prayer for Agnes. And so he prays, and afterwards, the man behind the counter says, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. What kind of a church do you belong to? And Tony Campolo says, the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at two in the morning. And the man behind the counter says, no, you're not. No, you're not. If, you were, if there was a church like that, I would join it. And so somebody looks at Jesus' life and ministry. What kind of a kingdom is Jesus bringing here? What kind of a, what is Jesus about here? What, what kind of a church is Jesus building here? And Jesus says, the kind of church that makes 300 gallons of really good wine for people that already have had too much. It is a kingdom of grace. Grace. 
And so the story tells us that failure is not the end. Jesus Christ turns water into wine. This is what I'm about. This is my agenda. This is my calling card right out of the docks. This is the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to throw an amazing, awesome party, and this is the kingdom of God. And notice, finally, that this is all at the expense of Christ himself. So there's a, a little statement there where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What is Jesus' hour? Well, in the Gospel of John, it's the hour of his crucifixion. In the midst of all this celebration, Jesus is thinking about his death. And why is he doing that? He's saying, listen, I've come to bring the party. I am the Lord of the feast. This is where history is headed, and this is where your life is headed if you follow me, but I'm telling you that I'm gonna have to die to bring you that. Jesus gives up his own joy to give us our joy. He sacrifices his own life because he loves us so much that he wants to bring us his life, 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 and more life. He turns water into wine. Let's pray. And Father, as we uh, sit here in this moment and as we think about this miracle and what you did and, and what it means that, God, you, you are a God of celebration what that might mean in our own lives. I pray that you would speak, God. I pray that if we are wrestling with uh, some aspect of following you, um, some area of obedience, uh, that we would give that over to you in faith, knowing that you are for our joy. And God, I pray that you would help us to have uh, just the uh, presence of mind to enjoy life as it comes, Lord, you created this world. You are Lord of the feast. Help us, Lord, to feast with our friends and to enjoy the sunset as a preview of what you are ultimately gonna do. And God, I pray that if there are those in this room that need grace, uh, those who feel like they've botched uh, their lives, God, that you would just explode into their lives um, surprising, unmerited extravagance. And God, I pray that we would be people that are become carriers of that same grace. And God, that our, that our church would be a place of joy. A place, a foretaste, a little preview of what's gonna come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.